0: Mark 14, verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, "'Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you,' and all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, "'Sit here while I pray.' He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. "'My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, "'to the point of death,' he said to them. "'Stay here and keep watch.' so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him... He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Thanks, Josh. We're treading on holy ground
1: in this passage. There are a few places, I feel, in the Bible that show more clearly the enormity of what Jesus did on the cross. Because here Mark shows us not just what Jesus' death means for us, but what his death meant for him. Here last week we, we saw and looked at the story that Mark tells of, of the, the woman who poured that pint of perfume over Jesus' head. A beautiful act, he says. Not beautiful to most of those who were there. It seemed a rather embarrassing thing for her to have done. It's a pointless uh, gesture, wasteful extravagance. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's beautiful, Not the kind of beauty we tend to obsess about, the shape of our bodies, the style of our clothes. But it's the kind of beauty that Jesus values, the kind of beauty Jesus wants to see in us. And it's a beauty marked by love and devotion for him, that honors him for who he is. But not simply that. Jesus adds a twist, which probably goes sort of beyond what she might have intended. This is how Jesus interprets what she did. He says, it's beautiful because it honors me, not just for who I am, but honors me for my death. And that's why Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be remembered. Because it perfectly fits with the gospel. It prizes Jesus' death above all things. It loves him for his death. But that's the kind of beauty Mark is wanting to stir in us. That story was the the preface to his passion narrative. And as we read on and and Mark tells us of the final hours of Jesus' life, I think we'd have that story in our minds, that woman in our minds. The measure of how much... We've really understood what Mark is trying to show us about the death of Jesus. It's not how accurately we can explain it to somebody, but how much her beauty marks us. And I want more of that beauty for myself. I want more of that beauty for us. So I'm going to pray that this passage will be used by God to make us more beautiful. Let me pray. Father, that is our longing, to have more of that beauty that woman showed. And so help us as we turn our eyes to Jesus now. Please open them. Help us to see more clearly his glory and grace. Help us to understand his love and so cause us to love him more. For his name's sake. Amen. We've been taking fairly long chunks as we've worked through Mark's gospel. And this, again, is quite a long chunk. It is, I think, a unit. You'll see how it begins. Verse 27. With Jesus predicting that all would fall away as the scripture foretold. And it ends with that very same thing happening. End of verse 49. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus says... Then everyone deserted him and fled. Well, like we saw last time, Mark uses frames sometimes to show up particular themes he wants us to notice. Well, I guess that frame flags up two key themes. One is Jesus' profound loneliness, we'll notice here. All desert him, and he faces the prospect of the most appalling thing, which is to be forsaken By his father and the theme of fulfillment of Scripture things aren't spinning out of control we do understand the script was written long ago and that script the Old Testament scriptures are the key to understanding what's going on well two headings Jesus and his friends and then we'll look at Jesus and his father okay so first heading Jesus and his friends They've just enjoyed a really special evening together. The Passover meal, they've sung hymns, they've now gone for an evening walk out by the Mount of Olives. It's the sort of evening where friends are drawn closer together, where friendship feels all the more precious. And yet throughout this evening, Jesus has been deeply aware that these friends are about to desert him about to abandon him. So he says, verse 27, the beginning of our our passage, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When Peter objects with his typical bluster, Jesus says, verse 30, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself, will disown me three times. You'll deny you've had anything to do with me. Deny all knowledge of me. Not just you, Peter, all. You'll all fall away. Some friends, they'll prove to be. And yet, I think wonderfully, amazingly, Jesus still values their friendship. He wants their company. He goes to pray. It's a prayer he needs to pray alone. It it can't be a prayer they can join him in. Nevertheless, he wants them close by. He wants their company, their support. Because he says, verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. A crushing sense of foreboding overwhelms his soul a sense of the appalling desolation that awaits him. And so he wants these friends with him. Jesus goes to pray. When he returns, he finds them asleep. Verse 37, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? so much for dying with Jesus, he can't even stay awake with Jesus. It's easier now. The kids have, uh, have left home, but when they were at home, sometimes for Jules and I, the only time we'd really get to talk about the day and talk about things was last thing at night in, in bed. And I confess, on occasion, um, as Jules talked me through her day, <laughs> I might have dozed off. But sometimes... Sometimes, however tired I was, I knew I had to stay awake. I knew I needed to listen to her carefully. She had important things to tell me. And I needed to be alert. Well, for these disciples, if ever there was a time to stay awake, to forego the comfort of sleep, it was now. If ever there was a time to prove their friendship and stand with him, it was now. you imagine how Jesus felt as he returned each time to find them dozing? Actually, Mark tells us even then, he wasn't so much thinking of himself so much as thinking of them. It was not for his own sake, he says, they needed to stay awake. It was for theirs. Verse 38, watch and pray, he says, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A huge test was coming for them too. And the only thing that would keep them from falling away, from failing the test, was prayer. We tend to be much more aware of our physical needs than our spiritual needs. But what they needed most at that moment was not 40 minutes of shut-eye, They needed spiritual grace to stand firm because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They might say they would stand with Christ and serve him, be loyal to him, but in the face of temptation, they were weak. Flesh is not simply our bodies, the fact that they get tired as their bodies did. It speaks to of our fallen human nature. All of us, our flesh is weak. We're all too liable to fall. Without God's grace, we will not stand. And Jesus says, therefore, watch and pray. Twice more, Jesus goes away to prepare himself for the test that is coming, and twice more, he returns to find them sleeping. And it's no surprise that Peter's threefold Failure to pray leads to a threefold denial of Jesus. But not just Peter, all of them, all of them fail the test. Everyone deserted him and fled. Eleven of his 12 closest friends deserted him, and the other one betrayed him. Judas's act of friendship, greeting him with a kiss, was, in fact, an act of betrayal. Jesus values, amazingly, his friends. And yet all of them fail him. All of them fall away. So he's alone. And we see this test he's about to face, he will face alone. It won't be a team effort. There'll be nothing that they'll be able to look back on and take pride in for their part in Jesus' work of salvation. No. He did it all alone. No one can say, I helped. I played my part. And his aloneness as he goes to the cross is a reminder that salvation was all his work and utterly undeserved by us. There's perhaps comfort here too. Many in our world are deeply lonely, and no doubt some here are feeling very alone at the moment. Well, it's good to know Jesus knows that feeling. He has tasted the bitterness of loneliness. He understands. He can sympathize. Though, of course, he he knows a depth of loneliness beyond anything we have known. But there's comfort in that. Well, that's Jesus and his, his friends. The heart of the passage speaks, though, of Jesus and his father. There's a loneliness that was before him, that filled Jesus with dread. Unimaginable depths of desolation and anguish. Look again at at verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. The sorrow so deep, so intense, he feels it will crush him, kill him even. The prospect of the coming ordeal appalled him utterly. He faces it with anguish, deep, deep distress. Or maybe surprisingly so, we might think. He prays this hour might pass from him, but this is the hour for which he'd come. This is the hour he has said repeatedly must happen when the son of man will be, uh, will suffer many things, be rejected and killed. This is what he'd come to do. He'd come for this hour to give his life as a ransom for many. Yet he dreads it. We don't associate fear with Jesus. Remember Jesus in the boat, in the storm, all those experienced fishermen, terrified, fearing for their life. Jesus utterly unperturbed. He's scared now. Many people have faced cruel deaths with remarkable composure and bravery. Think of Latimer and Ridley, burnt at the stake on, on Broad Street here in Oxford. You know, the story as the flames were lit. Latimer said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Should someone have whispered to Jesus at this moment as he prayed in the garden, come on, Jesus, Play the man. After all, even if crucifixion was an appalling way to die, Jesus knew he'd be raised. Verse 28, he says, After I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee with the prospect of Easter. Why should Good Friday have filled him with such dread? Well, Jesus makes it clear why. What he dreaded was not the nails. It wasn't the agony of crucifixion. What Jesus f- f- filled him with such horror and anguish was the cup. Verse 36, he prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Not what I will, but what you will. He didn't pray, please, Father, not the nails. He prayed, please, Father, not the cup. And that's the clue to what Jesus feared most as he looked ahead to the cross. The cup is Old Testament imagery. Remember he said the Old Testament's the key, really, to understand all that's going on in the Old Testament. It's the cup of God's wrath. To drink that cup means to face God's righteous anger at sin. What Jesus feared as he looked ahead to what would happen the next day at Calvary was not facing the cruelty of man, it was facing the wrath of God. Not the blows of those Roman soldiers who would beat him and whip him, and hammer nails through wrists and ankles but the judicial blow of his father jeremiah verse 27 god had said i will strike the shepherd and that is the blow that jesus feared that's what filled him with dread we might well wonder why is the father about to strike his son. the son who has never done anything to offend him, has never disobeyed him. The father who has said on more than one occasion, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. So why is the father about to strike him? Why is he about to be given the cup of God's wrath to drink? And the answer, of course, is to spare us. Jesus was to drink it for us. We deserved it because we have lived in a way that deserves God's righteous anger. How we've lived may not bother us very much, but it bothers God. And God's justice demands that that cup must be drunk And Mark wants us to see that on the cross, Jesus would drink it for us so that we would never have to, never have to face God's wrath ourselves, but instead know his love and friendship and blessing. Look again at those words in verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. Why did the Father will it? Why did he will that his son should drink that cup? Clearly we'll see because it was the only way. If it was simply a matter of God just pouring that cup into the flower bed, as it were, and just telling us to, come on, Try and be a bit nicer to each other and pray a little bit more and all will be fine. If there was some other way, don't you think God would have done it? This was the only way. If we were to know God's love, then Jesus would have to taste God's wrath for us and drain that cup to its very dregs so there was nothing left for us to drink. As he prays in Gethsemane, it's as though Jesus glimpsed inside the cup, and what he saw was so appalling and dreadful. He felt almost crushed to death thinking about it. From eternity, he'd always enjoyed perfect union, perfect fellowship with his father. Yet on the cross, he knew he would face his father's wrath. He'd be God forsaken, and that prospect appalled him. And yet, amazingly, willingly, he determined to drink it out of love for his father and because of his father's love for you and me. Well, let me draw some things together. Three brief comments as we close. First, what this passage shows us afresh about our sin. Often we fool ourselves about the extent of our sin. Like Peter, we imagine ourselves to be much better than we really are. I think also we very often fool ourselves about the seriousness of sin. Sin doesn't feel all that bad to us. It's obviously not good, but we can't really imagine quite how serious it is to God. Is God's wrath really something we should worry about. Mark says, Look at Gethsemane. There we see how appalling it is to face God's wrath. For some people, hell is, is something to joke about. Jesus didn't think it was a joke, he didn't think it was a, an empty threat. The prospect appalled him. For some people, sin is not really such a big problem. We can deal with it ourselves. Live a bit better, try a bit harder, pray a bit more. Won't that do for God? If that would do, why did the Father want his son to drink the cup? The cross would be a pointless, empty gesture. As the disciples had thought, wrongly thought, that that woman's act of love, pouring perfume, was just an empty gesture. What a waste, we might say, as we look at the cross. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There was no other way. If Jesus hadn't drunk the cup, we would have had to drink it. Gethsemane reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. Secondly, this passage shows us something about our weakness. Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We could sing together in church of our love for Jesus. Like the disciples, we can declare our loyalty to him. But like them, we are very often fickle, faithless friends because the flesh is weak. And again and again, when temptation comes, we fall. Jesus had said earlier in Mark, to to follow him, we need to deny ourselves. But like Peter, again and again, we deny our Lord. Maybe by our silence, maybe by the way we live. Watch and pray, says Jesus, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We cannot face the trials that will come our way. In life, this week, in our own strength, we must look to God for strength. If Jesus needed to pray before he took up his cross, well, if we're to take up our cross and follow, we'll need to pray too. It's not simply that we ought to. We need to. Maybe that's a lesson some of us need to take from this passage. Watch and pray. So our sin, our weakness, but then supremely, I'm sure Mark wants us to see, our Savior. Many of us may be able to explain the meaning of Jesus' death fairly well. But this passage certainly is precious to me because it shows not just what his death means for us, but what his death meant for him, what it cost him. Gethsemane shows us that our salvation was almost unimaginably costly. The measure of the cost is not the physical agony of the nails. It was the spiritual agony of the cup. The cost was immense. And I think that's why Jesus draws attention to that woman pouring out her treasured possession over his head because her act spoke of the preciousness of his death. She poured out perfume. He was about to pour out something infinitely more precious than that. Pour out his very blood. Her act spoke of love and devotion. Much more, Gethsemane makes it clear that what Jesus did in going to the cross was not a cool, dispassionate thing, not just a kind of Routine obedience to the father's plan, fulfilling scripture and all that. It was deep, deep love that led him to do it. Love for his father and love for us. Love for us friends that deserve so little from him. So as we look at Jesus in Gethsemane and as we get a glimpse of the enormity Of the cost it was for him to die. To drink the cup of wrath. Get a glimpse of the purpose of his death. He was drinking it so that we would never have to drink it. That should lead us to love him as the woman did. To count his death as more precious than anything else we have. So that now and for eternity we want to love him and praise him and thank him. And may that beauty more and more mark us. Let me pray. Father, how much there still is for us to grasp and understand about the cross and what Jesus did. Forgive us being content with a a small and simple, neat, understanding, explanation. We pray, please, that not least in the run-up to Easter, give us each a fresh appreciation of what he did. And again, as we grasp his love, so stir us to love him for his name'sake. sake.